0: everyone and welcome to this podcast. We are hosting a leadership and management podcast series featuring CDE of the Year recipients and today's is the first in that series. My name is Jan Orford and I'll be your host today. I would like to start by introducing Anne Morris who was a recipient of the 2016 CDE of the Year Award. Anne started working in diabetes education in 1976 at the Royal Children's Hospital. In 1980 she moved to Diabetes Foundation Victoria or Diabetes Victoria and in 1984 she moved to Warrnambool where she continues to work in diabetes education in her own private practice. Anne, Jan Baldwin, myself and along with many others are founding members of the ADEA. Anne successfully developed the Diabetes Burnout Symposium for the St John of God Warrnambool Diabetes Centre, which was proven to get people re-engaged with their health and assisted the grieving process that affects the people of those with diabetes. Anne stated that burnout and other psychological factors play a significant role in people with diabetes and their capacity to follow clinical instructions and meet healthcare professional expectations. This adds more to the burden already present. In addition, Anne was once a gliding instructor and held a private pilot's license. And in all the years I've known you, Anne, I never knew that. So how are you, <laughs> so how are you today,
1: Anne? I, I'm really good, thanks, Jan It's lovely to do this, um, this, and take this opportunity to do this for you and everyone in ADA.
0: And thank you for all you've done for ADA as well. Um, I just wondered, when reading through your introduction, what on earth made you uh, decide to pursue a career in diabetes education and I guess to still be there after all this time?
1: I think, um, <laughs> it's a good,
0: very good question.
1: Uh, look, I look, I, at the Children's Hospital, uh, in the, in the mid seventies, I was working in a variety of places and I was appointed to this ward where all the children with newly diagnosed diabetes came at that time under an and under the auspices of a doctor, John Court, who was well known in the days and still probably is. And, um, it really developed a strong interest in in this particular part of medicine and and nursing and I think it really just went on from there. We used to, in those days, have all the children diagnosed in Victoria come to the children's. There weren't any regional centres providing this service. There were hardly anybody diabetes educators. In fact, there were only a couple in those days and so we very much were an inpatient model. Focusing on everything we needed to and we used to include children that came in from the Torres Islands Um, We we used to draw Patient cohorts from everywhere in those days and so it really did it was something that I realized was had a great deal of interest for me and and, um, I pursued it from then on
0: so and as I said, you, you've obviously had a long career and I, I wonder what have been the most difficult professional obstacles that you've encountered um, during that time and how did you actually overcome those obstacles?
1: Well, I've been, I suppose I'm, it's a bit hard for me to answer some of that because I, I've really been very lucky that I've never really faced huge difficulties in any of my work area. Once I left Melbourne, even in Melbourne, I, had a, I loved my time at diabetes. Diabetes Victoria in those days, we were very much groundbreakers. And of course, in 1981, we, we worked in 1980, um, to develop the ADA. So it was a very exciting time to have a career in this particular field and the progress that that created. It acknowledged the work that we were all doing, but it gave professional integrity to what we were doing. So it was a very exciting time. And then I suppose moving to Warnable, you know, I still maintain a very proactive role with the organization but as in in diabetes education I saw really I had no real barriers to to the obstacle to to providing care and services and I suppose the only time I started to find that I had difficulty was when people wanted to move away from person-centered care and develop a silo approach and I I found that incredibly difficult to to work with because it went against all my principles um i think just trying to to work with management and to help them understand that person-centered care was the way it needed to go um was really one of my biggest challenges to be honest
0: i think as somebody who's been there and done that i think you're absolutely right and i'm sure it's a common problem that we've all experienced Um, And I guess diabetes, as we know, is a chronic condition and and obviously requires constant attention. And I guess this sometimes leads to diabetes burnout. And as as we've mentioned, you actually developed the Diabetes Burnout Symposium to help people try and regain their motivation. And I just wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that symposium and and what what it actually consisted of, if you like
1: it um well, for a long time now I've had a strong belief in the in in the psychological issues around diabetes self care and the capacity that that having diabetes burnout diminishes it you know really does create an enormous issue for people to remain active with their self care and I'd known this for a long time, and I just thought it would be so good to have a To highlight this in a major way and have a a major function and symposium uh, around this, and to really raise it as a highlight, and I thought of no one better than Linda Beanie, who's a long-standing colleague of yours and mine, and who has a lot of experience in working with people with diabetes. And um, I invited her, and she offered, she accepted, which was great. And she did a, 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 a. There were a couple of other things planned for the day, but she was the keynote speaker spoke for an hour and a half and the whole room was just completely engaged with what she was saying because it made so much sense and we had an enormous turnout for the day and the feedback was so rewarding you know people said it was life-changing and quite dramatic sort of responses to something that I thought was So important to acknowledge, and it normalised so much for so many people. Um, We had a great deal of response from the TV. We had, you know, regional TV, (laughs) and it was, it was amazing. And um, it just helped me really confirm or confirmed to me how important it was to normalize these things for people and this was such a golden opportunity and so many people have supported it it was amazing people came from Geelong
0: right around the region it was incredible thanks Anne Um, I think you've sort of probably already answered a lot of this but what was your inspiration I guess in terms of developing this program and what was your driving force when you were actually creating it at the the time because
1: it's an interesting question. I, I, I've thought about this a bit and I, I, I suppose one of the things about me as a person is that I'm, I'm fairly self, strongly self-driven, but it, I just saw it as an opportunity to raise the profile and I'm, I'm pretty good at organising things. Not everybody is, but I'm pretty good at organising things, thanks to my mother, I think. But I, I, I just saw it as a, as a way of not only promoting our service, which we, which we believe was very psychologically sensitive um, it, it really did align us with a very psychologically sensitive a- approach to care and we also at at the hospital I was working at at the time had extremely good mental health services with really good psychology that were engaged with us and that we would refer actively to. So it really did dovetail nicely into the way we were profiling our service. And um I thought this was such a such a good opportunity to take that and then go right, let's use that as a a, an opportunity to go to go further and raise the profile in this way. And of course Linda being the speaker that she is with her skills, it was just it just it just worked perfectly that she could come. And so I think that would You know, that that was sort of dovetail around how we were thinking and and why it ended up being the way it was. I didn't think it would be as hugely supported as it was, but I was thrilled to bits that it was seen to be so important to so many people.
0: Thanks, Anne. I I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, Linda is certainly a very motivational speaker in this sort of area. And I Mm. guess that leads me to to another thought. Um, Obviously, there are always cynics in, in this sort of business, um, and I just wonder if if you've ever, I'm sure you've encountered some of those, um, particularly in working on this program or on any particular project that you've been involved with. And I just wonder how you keep yourself motivated during that sort of cynicism or it
1: it is it, is, it I think just well human nature being what it is, there'll be some people to try and create a balanced opportunity to you know. Create a balanced argument, I suppose, but I, I, I've never really allowed that to get too much traction in my head because I suppose I've, I'm very lucky that I've. I think with experience too, you know, you develop an instinctive approach to how things need to be done, and I'm lucky in that I suppose I'm not working with a lot of people I need to convince. I've only got, got myself to convince, and <laughs> if I believe that, um, if I believe that it, it's got value, uh, and I think that there's going to be, and people who are interested in, in hearing or seeing something, I'll certainly be motivated. I, I think the other thing that we we do have to be mindful of is that not everybody has that self-motivation and that vision and the capacity to, to sort of see that this is the right way to go and to offer these things. And I, I do think that people lack lack the confidence to, to believe in what they sort of believe. Um, I guess that comes with experience. I, I do know that you know, for instance, I've had people since I've been in private practice. For instance, I didn't have it when I was working in the hospital setting, and for the last seven years, I've been six years. I've been in private practice, and people would say to me, "Oh, so uh, you know, so if you haven't got any patients, do you go to work?" Oh, I say, "Well, of course I go to work. I've always got work to do. I've either got to talk to write, or I've got letters to write, or." I've got things to do and it bewilders me that if you haven't got a patient in front of you or a person with diabetes in front of you that you've got nothing to do. And so I think we have work to do in making sure that people coming up through as this is using this as a career path see their role in a in a really broad way. And it, it sometimes worries me a little that people are so narrow in or limited in the way they see a role and responsibility. And I think we, we still have a lot of work to do, Jan, in helping less experienced or, or newly more qualified, newly qualified diabetes educators to actually see the role for everything it offers it's not just the person in front of you it's a whole raft of opportunity it's a way that you see your role and see other consumers so consumers of a service aren't just the people with diabetes they're everybody who you engage with in that process and i think it's really i don't know whether we don't know where it's where it is an issue but I, I do think we have a problem where people don't see the role in its entirety you know we really do struggle i think to to try and get people energized by their own the value of their own position but yeah I, I, I do think that I do think that um, I'm lucky in that regard I've never suffered from a lack of motivation
0: <laughs> yes and I, I, I hear what you're saying you know I, I think it's a frustration that many of us who've been around for a long time ponder um, and I guess the system is very process driven these days and I think that main part play a part in that problem but I, I, I do agree with you and just I guess touching on that you've sort of talked about it in very general terms but I guess what for you after so long in the business what are the changes that have positively or negatively impacted on the field do you think and, and as I said I think you probably touched on this a little bit. Oh look I I just
1: I suppose when I first started off in diabetes education the idea of the, the the range of medication, the the progress in that we now see, which is both good and a headache, but it's also um, marvellous that people with type two diabetes have got such an, a a range of opportunity in terms of management. You know, medications—not um, only new oral medications, but different injectables to insulin—and the where that's going is just amazing. Certainly, um, research um, with regard to us helping understand us, helping us understand better the complexity of type two, but also diabetes in general now with the presence of the uh, you know antibodies with atypical presentation of diabetes means that you're seeing diabetes, not just as type one or type two, you've got this extraordinary mm. diversity within the condition itself and the complexity that off that forwards us in terms of trying to diagnose it accurately. It just remains such an interesting condition if you don't have it probably is if you have it, but it's not as great, you know, to live with, of course, but it is a, it is fascinating clinically, but also uh, from a technology point of view, Semi-automated insulin pump therapy is something I didn't think I'd ever see. And I just believe that this is going to be, make an incredible life change to many people with type 1 who can access the technology that will allow it to happen. And I I, I would hope that in the not-too-foreseeable future that the sensing technology that allows access to these things is going to become much cheaper because at the moment there are people who just can't afford to access it. And I think that's a terrible shame. But, you know, progress and recognition of the benefits will hopefully give rise to subsidisation across a, a broader spectrum. And I have to say, I hope that's then only partially subsidised because it would mean that that money would go much further, although that's not meant to politicise it. But it's just about broadening the access to it. And I, I just think that. I never really thought that I would see it in my day, but it's inc- it's really exciting to see what this is going to do for, for people who not only have been just recently diagnosed with type 1 but also people who've had it for a long time and the difference it's going to make to their lives. It's amazing.
0: Thanks, Anne. It, it, and you're right. It's, um, it never ceases to amaze me where we've come from. Oh. And I guess the other thing I'd like to, to pose to you is, is looking at what the characteristics are that you believe every leader should possess. And I guess other, on, on the flip side, what are the characteristics that you feel are detrimental to, to a leader? in whatever field
1: and not. Yeah, I I suppose I suppose we you know, we've seen and worked with many good and less optimally good <laughs> leaders over our time. I just I suppose the first thing I would say is if you have to be a boss and you're creating issues that are avoidable. So I, I firstly believe that managers shouldn't be bosses. I also think that managers shouldn't be everyone's best friend. So it's a very, it's a really important attribute, I think, to recognise your role and function as a leader and a manager. I do think managers need to also reflect the qualities that they expect in, other st- in, in, the, in the people that they are supporting as, as a leader. And so I, I always think that no one's perfect, but I do believe that managers have... For instance, managers of diabetes services need to be people who understand the condition and what diabetes education services and diabetes centres services should look like. I don't believe for one minute, I don't think I'll have any enemies there, but I I do believe that people managing services like ours, specialty, need to understand it and be part of it and have the qualifications to understand what they're leading. I also think that we, we really do need to encourage people that we're working with who are working uh, with us in the team to be critical thinkers, to to extend themselves, to embrace what they're looking at and to think about what they're doing. And I don't think that... I, I think that there can be a tendency for us to spoon-feed people that we're working with, people who are less experienced, but that doesn't do them any favours. And so I do think we need to make, you know, yes. Be a little bit hard and say, no, I'm not going to do that for you. You think it for yourself, you do it for yourself. But set up the support mechanism within a practical way that gives them a sense that that, that leads them in the right direction. I don't think micromanaging is something that we should be doing. I don't think that is a necessary skill that that we would see as being required because I do believe we work in an advanced clinical setting and we need to make sure that we 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 grow those skills in people who are working with us who are less experienced and who we're leading. So I think, you know, certainly um, being a good leader is really about bringing people along with you, really creating the team. There's no I in team. And so building that real team and cohesion is a real skill that not many ma- managers have. And I don't think many leaders have either because they want to be the boss or be in control and that's just not what's going to create a good team and a good culture. So I do think they're real skills and attributes that I think are important.
0: Thanks Anne uh, and you touched on this briefly but I wonder what advice you'd give to someone new, new to the career or looking to pursue a role in leadership or management or whatever it might be or starting a new program or even beginning their own practice. What what would you recommend to them?
1: Well, from a personal experience, nursing has been a, a marvellous career for me. I never, it's always been something that I think I wanted to do and it's ended up being the best for me. Um, so from that, from a, a, a original or key discipline, a principal discipline, I think nursing's been marvellous. It's given me so many skills that I just think priceless, actually. Finding a place in diabetes education has been rewarding. It is It is rewarding, because you can do so much with so little it has been clinically so interesting and i think anything any condition you know although i use the word disease with caution any medical condition that keeps you in a, a role and keeps you interested and ha- offers clinical variation that keeps it interesting is something that you know is reasonably unique and i've never been bored with my job i've never been bored with The scenarios I'm offered, because although some of the scenarios are the same, the people themselves give the variety to what you do. And as I said, the smallest thing can give such enormous reward. It's not just about it's not just about giving a pump and you know the excitement that happens. It's the little things that we do and the way we engage that can make such a difference. Not judging someone can make such a difference to how they start to engage with services where they have been previously judged, that that to me can make enormous difference. So I think if you're looking for an interesting job or if you want to commit to any specialty in nursing or, or whatever career you choose, if you enjoy it and you find it rewards you and you, you feel as though you've found your niche, then that's the right thing for you. I think the really important thing though is that if you're not really finding that this is not what you want to do, then you need to search for that for that piece because uh you you you'll get great reward if you can find the right thing and I think i have I, I think that the other thing too about starting your own practice is that if you've got the if you've got to go in with your eyes wide open so for instance, I think one of the unfortunate things about some aspects of a public model is public hospital model is that if you're not working in a busy area you Can You still get paid, you can sit on your backside all day and do nothing if you want to. In private practice, you don't work, you don't get paid. And I do think that I had a colleague who said to me, I've never worked so hard as I have since I've been in private practice. And so she works in both the public and the private setting. And she says, I don't work half as hard as I do because their expectations are lower of me yet and she's a nurse practitioner. Um and she 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 will sell she has told me she I work very hard in private practice, I don't work as hard. So I think it is about approaching private practice with your eyes wide open, but it is it is incredibly rewarding and it's one of the most enjoyable things I've done in my whole career. I've enjoyed a lot of my career, in fact I've enjoyed all
0: of it, but this has been fantastic. Thanks, Anne. It's nice to see you so passionate still after all this time. <laughs> <laughs> and i could yeah. to, to, to bring it back to a slightly um well it's fairly current in some ways because this lady there was a lady that won 107 million dollars just recently or whatever it was and, and so i wonder if you won the lottery tomorrow how would this impact on your personal career and i guess some of our listeners might also be wondering would you take up aviation again <laughs> uh
1: well if i'd won the 107 million, I would probably still work. I would be very, very fairly philanthropic, I reckon. Um, certainly give money to research, set up a research process. But I, I, I certainly don't have to get back behind the, the wheel again from a flying point of view. I, I used to have great fun flying gliders. It was great fun. But um, I think those days are past. <laughs> but I
0: still enjoy it when I do it. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> Okay, so thank you, Anne, so much for your time today. And that's actually all of the questions that I've got that have come through from, from your sessions. Before we conclude the conversation, though, do you have any take-home messages for our listeners today? Look, my, my, I guess my food for thought from this, the
1: takeaway message is respect the people in your care. Don't judge them for what they do or don't do. Use the choice of words wisely that you have. Be person-centred in the delivery of care because you've only got a short time with those people with diabetes in your care. And if you waste the opportunity, you've lost the opportunity. So don't waste that opportunity to make a difference.
0: Well, Anne, again, thank you so much for your time today. It's certainly been great to catch up with you once again. And I'm sure that this podcast will certainly have inspired our listeners in in their diabetes careers so thank you so much and thank you also to members for taking the time to listen to this podcast and if you have any questions please feel free to email them to education.adea.com.au so thank you Anne, and until next time goodbye bye everyone